All right. If you'd like to contact the show, send us an email at liveonfourlegspodcast at gmail.com or get involved in the conversation on social media. Join the Pearl Jam Podcast community group on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Live on Four Legs Pod. I'm Kurt Loder with MTV News. In more legal news, Pearl Jam's Eddie Vedder was arrested in the French Quarter of New Orleans at 4.25 a.m. Thursday morning on misdemeanor charges of public drunkenness and disturbing the peace. Pearl Jam and Urge Overkill had played the University of New Orleans arena a few hours earlier. According to police, a local man named James Gorman had met Vedder at a bar and gotten involved in a long discussion of music. Pearl Jam's management claims that uh, Gorman began harassing Vetter. Police say that when Gorman apparently said something nasty about Pearl Jam's music, Vetter allegedly spat in his face, setting off a brawl. One eyewitness at the scene told MTV News that Vetter was accompanied by his pal, Chicago White Sox pitcher and part-time alternative rocker Jack McDowell, and urge over kills Blackie Onassis and King Roser. McDowell was reportedly knocked out in the brawl, but Vetter was the only one arrested. He faces up to 90 days in jail at a $500 fine. A, hero, a hearing is expected to be set for next month. That's the news for now. We'll be back with more later here on MTV. MTV News. You hear it first. And away we go. You're listening to Live on Four Legs, the live Pearl Jam podcast experience featuring... Mr. Stone Gossett! Fucking camera in the dark. everybody now welcome to live on four legs a definitive live pearl jam podcast we're continuing on our 30 year anniversary celebration of the versus tour and we've gotten to this point now where we're actually going to talk heavily about what happened in new orleans so just to kind of tee you up yeah the new orleans show is pretty important and, and great and awesome we are going to talk a lot about the show but to get into it, I think it would be shortchanging it if we didn't talk about the story that kind of went on outside of what happened at these New Orleans shows. So, Eddie Vedder and Jack McDowell get into a little bit of a scuffle with some fans outside of a bar in New Orleans at about like 4.30 in the morning. Ed ends up getting arrested. Jack McDowell ends up going to the hospital, knocked unconscious by a car bumper. And it is an interesting period of time to kind of talk about this because the the way that this all kind of evolved all kind of centered on a lot of the conversation that we have about 1993, that it was a pretty tense time. Ed was still growing 
into the maturity that he would have way later on. And it felt like he had a, a lot to say and a lot to prove. So without further ado, I think we'll get into the episode and get to talking about it. But also in this episode, we're going to be talking to a special guest that may or may not have been involved in that situation down in New Orleans at the bar at 4.30 in the morning. Hmm, I wonder who that could be. Check in about 10 minutes. You'll find out. Randy Sobel over here, John Farrar over there. Hello, hello. So, have you ever been arrested? <laughs> I, have no, I have not. Have you? No, I have not. No, no. Is, does that surprise you? No, just, yeah, you, you, made, it, you made it sound like you had, you're going to have a story. <laughs> no, I, I really I yeah. was just hoping that there was a good story from you, even though I'm, no, you're no. probably, out of everybody I know, in the top half of people that I would never expect to get arrested, mm-hmm. maybe within the top five. I've been close, and I probably could have been a couple of times, but I've managed to escape and been lucky. There have been a couple of things I can think of where something probably should have happened in my younger days, but we're past that now. I'm a, I'm a responsible grown-up these days. Punk rock on the road? A little bit, a little bit. Yeah, I think the only time I came close was that I had something happen to me that I ended up in the back of a police car, and I was just kind of being controlled in there for a little bit until a friend found me, explained what was going on, and they took me somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So it was not my best moment at all, and I don't look back at that kind of laughing as, well, I was in the back of a police car for five minutes. It's kind of traumatic, but, you know, nothing came of it, and thankfully everything was good, and everyone was safe, and all I really want to tell is that the follow-up to that was that the next thing I knew, I was puking out of my passenger car, (laughs) passenger side window, so Mm -hmm. I guess you can kind of tell how that all developed, but that's ancient history, ancient, ancient, ancient history. So, but what is also more ancient history, cause I was not in jeopardy of getting arrested in 1993 at all. I was seven. Yeah. Seven is that Eddie. And like I mentioned before, what happens here is they have three shows plan for new orleans there's the first night on the 16th then there's the 17th which we're about to talk about and then they have an off day before playing again on the 19th and i'll just mention this now to get it out of the way but there is a poster out there that says tickets available for just the 16th and 17th so this must have been a very highly sought after show they must have added that third date and i wonder Mm. if they also kind of did it because they knew that they were going to have a recording session on yeah, the off day. Exactly. There's no other reason to play three shows in New Orleans. They knew they were going to be scheduling recording time, and you want to give yourself like a couple of days in the studio where you don't have to, you don't, you don't just want to come in for one day. It's the same thing they did in Atlanta in '94. Play two days, and you have the off day. And, like you schedule this in order to have a couple of days of recording get a couple of things down, play the shows, and you kind of like set up a little mini residency there, then move on and, and continue with the tour. For those interested, they actually recorded in the studio owned by Daniel Lenoy, 
who produced many of the very popular U2 records. I think yeah, Joshua just Tree. Octone Baby, I think. Octone Baby. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he's a pretty notable music producer out sure. there. Sure. And also on that poster, which is really interesting, is that tickets went on sale October 22nd for a show on the 17th. That seems insane to me. Is that way too soon? Because usually you would kind of buy tickets and you'd wait like at the very least two months, but to wait less than a month seems kind of unprecedented. Yeah. Even for 93, that seems a little strange. Let's go back into Eddie's story here. So they go to the studio that day. They lay down two tracks. I am assuming, and I feel like I've heard that one of the tracks was last exit. And my other assumption that the other one would be Tremor Christ. I'm assuming because on the 16th, they play the live debut of Last Exit. And then in Vegas, I believe, like two weeks later is the debut of Tremor Christ. So that's my guess. It fits within the time window. Mm -hmm. I know that around this point, they had Nothing Man kind of in the demo phase with, with Stuverud, but I don't think there were a whole lot of other stuff from that record that hadn't already been recorded that they were working on, at least not to our knowledge. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at PearlJamOnline.it, the great Italian site. They have all the recording sessions, and it says, I mean, hard to imagine was recorded for Vitalogy. It could have been that. Yellow Ledbetter says it was recorded for Vitalogy, could have been something like that. But these were like the first sessions for Vitalogy. So it could have been just like laying down drum tracks, getting some basic stuff in. There probably wasn't anything finished at this point. They're just trying to get some ideas down. Maybe, yeah, like Last Exit makes a lot of sense being that it was debuted, but probably just some early stuff, just laying down some foundations and then they would go back in 94 then finish up. So later that night, they're touring with Urge Overkill, and a couple of the guys from Urge Overkill, including the late Blackie Onassis, yeah, yeah. and also the reigning American League Cy Young Award winner, Jack McDowell, who Ed had developed a friendship with. And speak of Jack McDowell, we mentioned before that we were going to have a special guest on the show, and he is our special guest on the show. Jack, 1993 Cy Young Award winner. Established baseball star of the late 80s, early 90s. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on and talking to us. Oh, hey, thanks for having me on, man. Absolutely. Of so very cool. Yeah. So you and Ed go back a little bit of a ways. Talk a little bit about how that connection kind of started because it's very interesting. Oh, yeah. Well, we go back even before Pearl Jam. It was right before Pearl Jam started that that we had met and become friends because my first wife, who's my ex-wife now, and his first wife, who's his ex-wife, they were friends. And when I met the wife that I was going to have for the first time, she was like, you know, walking in my house because I was having a party at my house and I met her at a party at my house. And she walked through the house and saw, you know, my guitars and amps and CDs that I had there already made from my bands and stuff. She's like, wow, you're a musician. You like doing music? I was like, yeah, you know, I thought you liked playing baseball. I said, yeah, I do. I play baseball and I do music. And she goes, oh, well, I have a friend who's just a stud. He is such a good musician. And that was Eddie. <laughs> and I had to meet Eddie. 
right away. And it was as they were kind of putting together Pearl Jam and getting that first record done. A story that I kind of heard was that there was something that happened at CBGB's that you and uh, you were supposed to play CBGB's and then Pearl Jam booted you guys. What happened there? Oh yeah, they just showed up. It was it was funny because that was the first time I got to meet the entire band. I'd met Ed, you know, and we had hung out before. Yeah, we show up at CBGB's and we have a, we're supposed to be in the on the normal size, even though it's you know CBGB is still a small place to do a show at, but we were supposed to be there. So we show up there and they said, "No, you're not going to be here today." And we go, "Wait a minute, we just we all just traveled here. What are you talking about?" He goes, no, you have to go next door to the smaller place and you can only do an acoustic show. So that's what we did. We just did an acoustic show at the small place, CBGB. And I was like, why is that? Goes, oh, because there's a band and they just came in here and their record company just bought this place for, you know, away from you. <laughs> it's like, oh, cool. It's Pearl Jam. All right, well, we'll play. And then we'll go get to watch Pearl Jam play. That was cool. That's awesome. Do you remember anything from watching them? Oh, it was just fun. Yeah, it was, it was fun watching. That was the first time we got to watch it. And CBGB is such a small place and right, crazy place to be in. There was a great story that you told in the podcast with Steve Bennett, the Sportscasters podcast, when you did that a couple of years back about Ed getting interviewed and like pretending he was a call up. Talk about that a little bit, because it's a really, really funny story. Oh, in, in Seattle. That was funny. Yeah. We were, you know, took the White Sox to Seattle and we had a really early, you know, pre-game setup and he was at the park. And so he actually gave him a White Sox uniform to put on and go out there. And he went out to the outfield and I was hitting him fly balls. We're hitting him ground balls. You know, we're doing all this. And I said, oh yeah, this is the, and there was, yeah, there was a guy who, I think was running the TV there. And he goes, Oh, who is that dude? And I said, Oh, he's just a rookie. We just called up <laughs> and he's just getting ready. He's really good. He, like interviews him. It was just funny. We just messed with him. They would think that's five foot six. He's not like the yeah. typical baseball stature there. Yeah. But he was catching all the balls. So what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> so, as far as New Orleans goes, we're here, you know, we're at the, the 30th anniversary of this, basically. Talk a little bit about how you decided to go down there. Like, did you guys plan this as like, a, I don't think they were there for like three or four days, obviously doing some recording. How did it come about that, that you were down there hanging out? Well, just because they were, they were having concerts, you know, yeah, they were recording that second album down there. And then they also were having concerts and we were in the off season. And so, you know, Ed said, hey, if you want to come down here, cruise on down. Well, we're going to be recording the record and we got some shows. You should come down and check it out. And then the other band that opened up for him was straight from Chicago, too. So, yeah, Urge Overkill. Yeah. Did you get to catch the, the first two shows? Well, the first one, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, all of this transpires. They're recording. Yeah. They're in the studio a little bit. And then you guys go and uh, take a break for the night. And what kind of happened? Set the scene a little bit. Oh, yeah, it was a mess. Something I don't even know what happened because when I we, we went into this place, kind of a big restaurant bar situation place, and we went into it. And 
I was kind of sitting over on one side with some dudes and, you know, Ed, Ed was up in front and then some guy was in his face and just getting all over him. And he walked away from him. This guy just kept following him around and, you know, yelling at him, getting in his face. And we we're just like, what's going on? And we just kept walking away from the dude. Right. And I don't even know what the whole, you know, anger issues were and why they were, you know, why the guy was just all over him, yelling at him and stuff. And so about, you know, 20 minutes after we're in there and this is still going on, all of us, both fans and me, we're just like, let's go somewhere else. Let's get out of here. So we just walk out of the place. And the guy that was all over Ed comes out after him and starts to swing and try to hit him in the face and stuff. So I happened to get up to him and I got him in the face good. But then <laughs> wow. a dude, a dude who worked at that place followed all of us out i guess because i don't know i mean we were almost across the street and just walking away and he came up behind me and smoked me in the back of my head and knocked me into this car oh and that was just a weird setup the whole thing yeah i don't even know and it turns out you know that oh that guy was a friend of the other guy so that's the only reason he did it but like we didn't even know what was going on with this guy was just in eddie's face and just wanted him like for the, the whole hour it was weird. It was just super weird stuff. And Eddie spit in this guy's face while this altercation was going on, right? That I spit in his face? That's, 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 that's the story. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I don't remember spitting him in his face. I know I punched him in his face. <laughs> After that, like, they brought him to jail. Do you remember seeing him the next day at all? Do you remember kind of going back and being like, hey, what was going on with yeah. that? How are you feeling? Yeah. Where did well, you yeah. wake up? Yeah, finish that story because we don't know that. Yeah, they they arrested him. So dumb. He didn't do anything, you know. It, the, then they then he was out, and they actually did that concert the next day. Yes, I did see two the second concert too. It was funny because that second concert, when he came out, you know, there was uh, a, everyone kind of knew already that he had been arrested and he might not be able to make this show and all this, and they put him on a lay down thing and rolled him out like he was like he was dead or something oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> i was like oh that's crazy oh that's crazy and then he got up and started singing i'm like oh, okay i see what they're doing they're just kind of messing having fun <laughs> you had to go to the hospital for stitches um i don't i don't know i don't think i had stitches i don't i don't remember if i had stitches i just had i just kind of got knocked out because my my head hit the side of the car and just knocked yeah. me a little bit. It wasn't the punch; it was the me hitting the car. Right. You know that dude that hit me? He ended up getting arrested down the road. Oh, okay. His whole thing, his whole thing is he tried to sue Eddie, right? For what happened, and when they went to the court immediately the police grabbed that guy and arrested him because he had done some other crime. I don't know what it was, but he had done some other huh. crime and not showed up at the court for his court stuff before. And so they got him arrested immediately. And so there was no suing and no, nothing. They just arrested him and pulled him out. Well, that story has not been told. That's very interesting. 
he had That's the warrant fair. out already and then showed up and they're like, yeah, all right, we'll take it. <laughs> we yeah, got you. I'm suing him and they, uh, they arrested him for, wow. I don't even know his, what he did wrong that he was arrested for before. That's wild. Yeah. The guy's name was uh, James Gorman, I believe. And yeah, he, he went to trial and Eddie didn't get to say a word. I think he was really frustrated because he wanted to tell his side of the story and they just threw out the case. He walked off and, you know, just like that, it was kind of back to life, you know. One last question before uh, we we thank you and really appreciate you telling the whole story here. But I don't know if you've ever seen this interview, but there's an interview where Ed is wearing a helmet with the number 29 on it. And I think it's before the drop in the park show, the one where Ed is on the scaffolding, one of the most infamous scenes in Pearl Jam history. And he's talking about you a lot. And he tells a lot of the stories that you just retold to us, but uh, he's wearing his helmet. And he says, this is in dedication to my friend, Jack McDowell. Uh, have you ever seen that interview at all? No, I haven't seen that. No. All right. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to send it your way after we're done here. Oh, cool. Well, we thank you so much for joining us and especially on such short notice like this. This was awesome. Great stories. And thanks for giving the context of what happened on that night. Baseball and music, dude. That's what it was about. That's right. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. All right. So now figuring all this out, what do you take out of all that? (laughs) Well, this is not. Eddie Vedder's finest moment, let's be honest. I mean, yeah, I get you're trying to be the everyman and you're trying to be this man of the people and you're this gas station attendant and now you're this rock star and, like, you want to defend yourself against these people, but you can't do this. Like, who cares if some waiter is offending you? Like, he spit in this guy's face. You can't do that. Like, you got to be smarter than that, man. Like, yeah, 1993, even then, they should have someone with him be like, look, you got to. And I, th- I think the guys from Urge Overkill, even a Blackie says, like, look, we're just going to go. Like, you got to chill out. And he, like, wouldn't let it go. And, yeah, he ends up spitting in this guy's face, which technically is assault. You can claim that in a court of law. And just a dumb thing to do. Like, you're Eddie Vedder. You got to be smarter than this. Like, don't let these people get to you. They're just some drunk asshole. Who cares? Now, I'm not going to go out there and defend Ed, but I'm going to understand the side where he's coming from. There's a lot that's happening during this time period. We've kind of exhausted that even with just the episode last week. You know, a lot is being put on their fame. They're out doing this tour for a new record. They just sold a million copies, and it's not necessarily the most celebratory news for the band and also in their heads right now is okay how can we just write more music let's just write more music let's keep writing what we feel and go from there they're always thinking about the future at this point and he's got a lot of stuff weighing on his mind i know i've been in situations before where i feel so passionate about something that the person sitting next to me that disagrees with me i want to just sort of have them see my side and not all the time. That's not going to be the case because people have made up their decision. I think that's a little bit why we have so much, you know, disarray within politics and stuff like that is that everybody's sort of figured out what they want to believe and what they want to trust. 
And they're not diverting from that, but people are getting angry that maybe I can't convince this person that doesn't know what they're talking about to believe the facts and to believe the real details. That That's a common occurrence now. And it's, you know, it's just part of internet culture and part of Twitter and how it's kind of devolving a little bit. But, you know, that's sort of what happens to him here. He wants to stand up and say, look, I'm not that kind of guy that you think I am because he's prideful. He's passionate. He loves his work. And every rock star that kind of came before him, he respects and he wants to kind of continue that legacy. That's why they're not hanging out with bands like Smashing Pumpkins as much. They're hanging out and getting advice from, you know, Neil Young at the time. And that's actually something going back to that Bob Dylan tribute show where he talked to Bob and he was like, how do I deal with all this? And Bob's like, just go away. Just run off. Don't read the newspaper. Don't do anything. And I feel like you could take that advice to a limit sometimes because that's good advice, but you sort of, and, and the way that Ed is wired, I feel like he's the kind of guy that would want to, in a sense, fuck around and find out. And he did. He did. It did not serve him well. He had to go back to New Orleans to, he was supposed to testify. He never ended up testifying, but he went to court and he really wanted to say his piece and never got to. And also his friend got injured. We can talk about Ed all you want, but you can't spit in this guy's face. Like, what are you doing? Like, that's just dumb. He's talked about this on stage a couple of times. Not in detail, but like mentioned it a couple of times offhanded. Be like, oh, yeah, you know, there was some trouble. But he knows better than that now. And he was young. He was like 27 years old, 28 years old. Like, yeah, you want to stand up for yourself and defend yourself. But he was definitely in the wrong here. You can't go spitting in people's faces. Now, this also kind of ends up in history as a very important quote and kind of turns into something even bigger because the guy kept saying, and he follows him out of the bar, he keeps saying, you're not my messiah, you're not my messiah. And Ed says, that's what I was trying to tell you, man. I was trying to tell you that. I'm not your fucking messiah. And what do you know? No fucking messiah is the name of the big bootleg compilation that came out a couple years later, and there you go, the rest is history. All right, well, without really teeing up what happened you know new orleans wise we kind of said that last exit debuts the night before and we're going to get a very special version of crazy mary in this show that we'll get to i think the best thing you got to do is just open up the show and start it off look they're playing in an arena called uno lakefront arena you would have to think that one of the obvious choices to open up in three shows would be oceans and it was
Well, first off, you gotta love when the crowd just can't help themselves and they can't stay still for two minutes before the rockers kick in. There is clearly some surfing going on. There's clearly some movement in the crowd. They were not interested in waiting on this. And I enjoyed this version. I think that Dave was a little tempered on it, which is nice because sometimes in Oceans, he really can go at it and really start pounding away and it can kind of take away from what the groove of the song is sometimes. Sometimes it sounds incredible, but there are other times where it can get a little bit a little bit jagged, yeah. I guess. Yeah, if, if he goes off by himself, if the band doesn't follow them, then it can be weird. But yeah, he right. showed a little bit of restraint here. Yep. You know, there's a couple of nice little howls that happen in here too. During one of the verses, he kind of goes after it and it's nothing as to what would come next. That's what I want to talk about, but Anything you got to say about the opener of this show that we I didn't just say? Yeah, just doing the Obeth lines. You know, we talked about that earlier with her and Jack McDowell's wife being roommates. He was doing that around this time, too, giving her the shout-out during uh, Ocean's Here. It's nice. His voice is in fine form. Why go? Jeremy, stay to love and trust. No verses, because the next one would be even flow. No yeah. verses within the first five. It's definitely a choice. I mean... Night two out of three, I looked and they did do some verses earlier the night before. But yeah, it's definitely a choice to come out and start with all of these older songs. But you know what? It gets the crowd fired up. And obviously they would have been fired up on Animal and Go. But to get Why Go Jeremy, that's enough to get them going. I don't see Jeremy as a number three song right. very often. But I think maybe this works. But before talking about Jeremy, you got to talk about Why Go in that beginning. fuck ed he has no limits on this they have to go a couple of measures with the drum beat before the bass kicks in to kind of fill what he was doing because he kept doing it and doing it and doing it that they were like okay we have to anticipate when he's gonna stop and he's not stopping right now i didn't time it but it feels like a full 45 seconds to a minute that he's doing this this is fantastic yeah, they're just letting it sit and letting the tension build. Yeah, it works really well. Give Dave some credit, too. I think I talked about last week that Why Go was just super fast. This one has a little bit more of the groove to it, and he slowed it down a little bit here. So it let Stone kind of do his thing. And, like, this show, I think, is all about Stone Gossard. He had a fantastic night on the show. I'm going to mention it 15 times, probably. But you get to see him a lot on the video, just kind of grooving around to do, like, 1993 Stone moves. Yeah, I think Ed's voice, again, great show for that. The ending scream was pretty massive. A very pent-up shockwave to start this night. 
And then before Jeremy, he says, we ain't going fucking nowhere is kind of a tongue in cheek to the title of Why Go. And then once again, they rip into the song as if it were the last day they ever played Jeremy. There's no first chorus. I think out of all of the changes from this era, I think that's one of my favorite ones. Yeah, where they just kind of let it die and let it sit for a second and then kick back in. Right, because Jeremy has a little bit of repetitiveness to it to get that and to kind of have it be unexpected too where you don't have to stop for a second and sing the chorus kind of deal like you're in back to kind of the heavy stuff and that whole second verse is going to be pretty heavy here because ed's kind of going a little off script and during the recess ladies line he's like how am i supposed to forget and it kind of crosses him up and he shouts some gibberish right afterwards but the intense daddy didn't give affection line like again that might be my other favorite thing about these kind of mixed up versions of Jeremy from 1992, 1993. This just incredible. For 1993, this raises the bar for intensity. And if you want to watch anybody on this song, I think you want to watch Mike. Headbang is just a sight to behold in this one. Just awesome. I'm still going to go back and point to Stone on this one again. I think him just driving that rhythm really sends the song in like another level. And even at the end, like it felt like Stone could have just gone off on that thing, just kept building, kept building, because like you're waiting for the big hay part to come in at the end, and it felt like maybe they weren't gonna do it, but then they finally break into it at the end, and Stone just lets loose completely. Yeah, this is awesome. Need to love and trust that happens right afterwards in this little threesome here. Very heavy, and I like Dave on this and I think that more and more I hear Dave on Say the Love and Trust I'm starting to like it a lot more just the symbol usage the constant usage of symbols has a tendency to cause a little bit more chaotic versions of songs and because Dave is kind of all about these little chimes and and, mm-hmm. and using very wide a lot mm-hmm, like Dave was all about the chaos on this and Dave's chaos leaves to Mike sounding chaotic on the solo and just the more and more you hear especially from mike which 1992 mike is pretty incredible but you can tell his confidence is still not quite where his peak would be but 1993 he felt a lot more confident out there and you can see every single show he's getting more into it and he's breaking out of his shell a little bit more yeah this gets a good crowd reaction too i was kind of like waiting to say because jeremy's the big moment right the mtv awards and all that still was a big deal but yeah after jeremy's state gets a good reaction that's one too where dave got to kind of put his own stamp on it because it wasn't fully formed when he joined the band so he got to kind of have more of a say in how it was going to go from the beginning so it makes sense that he would want to show off on that one a little bit and show off kind of what he can do different from what Kristen was doing the next four after even flow are going to be verses yeah. verses is going to have eight coming. You're not going to get like Rearview Mirror in the set. You're not going to get Elderly Woman. You're not going to get Dissident and obviously WMA, which you almost never got. So everything else is going to be on this show. You hang on there. We'll get to our versus stuff. Yeah. Ed here with a bottle of wine and a bottle of water. He shushes the crowd and says, I don't know if you'd notice, but the papers tell you how I've taken to carry a bottle around wherever I go. I really take two. I take this one and I take that one and I'll decide maybe I'll take a drink of this one. Maybe I'll be sober. Maybe I'll be fucked up. So let's take me out of this for a second. What would you rather see me take a drink out of right now? 
and there's a commanding response for water and staying sober and healthy at a show where you're going to no, it's alcohol. Everybody wants the alcohol, so that gets the crowd all riled up going into even flow. Jeff is definitely getting his laps in on this. Jeff is peak mm-hmm. Jeff. There's going to be some moments later in oh, the show. Yeah. It felt like he, he levitated off. onto the drum riser at one point. Yeah. He yeah. shows off his basketball skills and more than one. I, th- I caught two, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. he's all over the damn place. So most of my thought about this version, I thought last week's solo sounded a little bit more bluesy. And I didn't think that this one was that dissimilar to last week, but it felt like this was a little bit more funk influenced rather than bluesy, even though the riffs kind of sound the same. Does that make sense to you here? Yeah, I mean, a little bit, a little more of the 70s kind of P-Funk influence, but Honestly, I was more watching Stone because watching Stone is just a joy on this. He's completely in his element on Even Flow. It's everything you want from a Stone Gossip performance. I was more watching the stage right. There is a big ending on this. Mike tears it to shreds. And what more can you ask for from this era? Now we get to our first two verses songs. We're going to go with the two upright bass songs, Glorified G, Daughter. They didn't end up doing that at the show that we covered last week, but they're packaged together here. And going back to Jeff, I think I have more talking points on Jeff than I do on Stone for this show, but that's okay because you'll hear a lot about Jeff and you'll hear a lot about Stone, which I'm sure that none of you are complaining about right now. But it feels like Jeff just wants to dive into the crowd during this. He's like on the edge of his seat and you can feel him like teetering and you can see in his eyes like, damn this thing because this got to a pretty kind of ruckus version of glorified G. This was pretty intense and it seemed like he just wanted to get up, rip that thing from the ground and just run all over the place, do his jumps, do his leaps and just go on this. But he's refined to the seat. Not every version of glorified G you could say that for, but this one had that kind of feel to it. At the end, too, you see Ed, he's got his hand under his jacket. He's kind of patting his heart. He's pretending he has a cat, like he's stroking it. Like, I get the heart thing, obviously, with Glorified G, but what's he doing, like, pretending to be Dr. Claw or something, like, stroking this cat under his shirt? I think it's kind of saying, like, that gun owners treat their guns like they're pets, like they're part of the family. I think that's what he's getting at here. And then the gun being under his left side of his shirt means that it's part of his heart. That means that's where the passion comes from. So I think that's a little bit of a subtle, not so subtle way of saying people that love their guns will put their guns above anything. So Could be. Daughter is cool here too. I think that's all about the tag to me and for obvious reasons. It's an OTOTO tag, if you will. The song, well, we said we were out of 10 area, but... No, we still got one.
is tagged for the first and last time ever at the end of this daughter. What do you think about this? He sings a few lines, he gets a really good reaction, and then afterwards there's a little bit of something else, but definitely not quite tied in with release. But at first you're like, damn, okay, yeah, just throw that out there. Yeah, and like they had opened with it the night before. It's not like it hadn't been played in a long time and he wanted to give it some love like they had just opened with it. But if you don't know it's coming, like at first it's a little weird. Like you're like, wait a minute, what is this? And then it kicks in the lyric and they're like, oh, okay, yeah, it's crazy. That's release. It works. I can see them in another world where release doesn't become the, of course, fan favorite obsessed opener that opens every big show seems to. This could have worked if release had not become that song. I think it works really well. I think the theme fits, of course. But then there's that other part. Like he gets kind of angry and he's just, he's just fucking something. I couldn't tell what he was saying. Almost thought, sounded like the c word, but I couldn't. couldn't I tell heard exactly. the c word. Yeah, I absolutely yeah. heard the c word in that. Yes. Yeah. Like suck a c word. Hmm. And 30 years later, it is way worse than it is now. I think that everybody at that show is like, yeah, say it, say it. And like, nobody would be either offended or disgusted by it. And not really either. It's just kind of like, all right, that's a low point. That's it. But again, 28 years old, you got a lot on your mind. You got a lot to say when all the rage is up there right in your head. This is your tandem going animal. It's not starting the show, but it's right here in the middle of the set. And it was due time to get back to the big versus songs, the big heavy ones. And Dave A is just lightning fast on go. Heavy usage of the ride cymbal and the snare just taking for a drive. McCready going behind the back to do the first little solo. And I was a little surprised that after sitting down after two songs, that Jeff isn't bouncing all over the walls again, especially because it was go. I thought that he was going to just run amok all yeah. over the stage and like... Well, I think he's got to play so now. fast that he needs to focus on this especially. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Because he's he's in it on Animal. It doesn't take long. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. And also, the jumps are massive from Jeff on this, too. It's not the jump that I want to get into, but the jumps are massive. The band is locked in. They're engaged. They're continuing to fire on all cylinders. This is a good night for them, and they're right within the yeah, I mean, the left side of the stage is where the acrobatics are happening, but Stone and Ed just a joy to watch in the song. And then Animal is just, like, all kinetic energy. You couldn't hold them down with nails and stapler. Like, they were going to be all the place. Even Stone gets into a little bit. That was just super fun to watch. I'm really glad that we have a video for this show. Yeah, that's all the energy, and you think, like, okay, let's pick up that momentum, let's keep it going. And they decide the opposite. And this is not something that was that common of this era, but they're taking a request here. And the request is for footsteps. Not what you think about when you think of Pearl Jam in 1993. And it's interesting because you got Going Animal before footsteps, and then you got Alive, and then you got Garden. I think that's a conversation for a little bit, but it's a little jumbled up in a way. However... If we're just focused on footsteps, I actually really kind of love the placement for it, and I love the approach that they took for the song because usually in the early 90s when they were doing it, it was very stark. It was very downtrodden, and they would kind of almost make it feel like a sit-down song even if they were standing up. But 
This version I thought had a lot more punch than usual that you would get during this era. Almost in the same way that you have like a resiliency, kind of a triumphant manner from when they play it either early in the set or kind of in the encore in recent times. Now that just drives, that just goes. And I really like this. It kind of has that attitude that those recent songs, like in big moments, this song kind of takes the opportunity to be triumphant and it's almost like 20 years ahead of its time. You know, they don't play this song very often then. I think on this tour, we got seven times, which honestly feels like way more than what I would have expected, but they are making the best of what they have with this. This is the 13th time ever being played, and you know, people in the crowd, those savvy enough to have the Jeremy single know this, but perhaps this is the first time for some of this crowd that is hearing this, and they're like, ooh, that doesn't feel like typical Pearl Jam, but hmm, this could be something. Yeah, this version is definitely different than that Rockline version from 92 that became the B-side on Jeremy. That one like is a lot moodier, a lot darker, almost sounds more like a funeral. You know, it's the end of the story in the, the Mama-san trilogy. I'm listening to it, and I'm like, okay, footsteps, so we're going along, and you get to the intro, and then it gets to the end, and like the whole band's going, and you're like, man, they really did something different with this. Like, they turned it into... I won't say a rocker, but like a little more kind of uplifting and triumphant than we were definitely used to hearing it. Yeah, I think this is very cool. Like on paper, you're like, maybe this doesn't fit in a main set in between Animal and Alive, but they really did something different with it and turned it into something very cool. There are two things you thinking in the set footsteps alive. Well, what's missing? Mm-hmm. There's no once played at this show. I wonder if it was just something, an opportunity that just said, no, nah, I don't want to take yeah, that yeah. tonight. Not special yeah. for this night that we're going to do something special a little bit later. So I get that. I get that. You're not going to want to do that every single night, but I also think here that it is a little jumbled up because footsteps into a live is awesome but also i think you got to follow up on a live with something that continues the momentum you built up with a live if footsteps went into garden then you're building all that up because i think that's kind of a seamless transition that you have within two songs 
and then Garden gets heavy at the end can lead up to something like a live where you get the crowd coming off of what's a heavy version of Garden. The crowd gets picked up for a live and then Porch following up on that. Everybody's going to be just out of control during this. But they kind of decide to almost balance it a little bit more. I wonder if that would be something that it decides to do setless construction wise in later years, or he would learn kind of, okay, maybe this isn't going to work as well. Maybe we need to put more focus on building up to the end. What do you think about that? Yeah, maybe. And like coming off of 91 and 92, like Alive was more of an early set song. It didn't really start to move to the back of the sets until later. And we talked about it too a lot with Garden, like they would always come out and open up an encore with Garden because it doesn't fit in in a main set. Like it would be hard to follow and hard to fit in because it'd be such a left turn sonically in the middle of all these other big, heavy rock songs. But you kind of see that here. Alive is big, like another big crowd reaction. Jeff's all bouncing around and screaming at the end, and then you're going to go into this really kind of haunting, funereal version of Garden. And we see it now where they'll take that penultimate song of the main set and like kind of have it be a left turn before you get to the end. But Ed's always going to take the road less traveled when it comes to Zelda's construction. Sometimes he's always up to try things. Like you kind of said, Alive is a really powerful version. And maybe that's something that they're thinking, like, does the alive porch combo, is that too much? Maybe, yeah, yeah. Does that give the crowd no energy for the couple songs that you're going to do in an encore? Right. Like, yeah, yeah, you blood, break that up a little. Blood's being played in the encore. need the crowd to be up for that. Sure. So it's something to wonder, but awesome version of alive. It's all about energy. Like you said, everybody bouncing. It's all about that. And Ed doing his screams and Jeff running roughshod over the stage. Like, they're having a really good time at this. And then Garden is fun, too. I think it's just another one that gets you really heavy moments. And then Mike's piercing solo at the end is excellent. Just has even a little bit of technical flair to it as well. But also in Garden, which is interesting, you see a couple of things flying in the air. And you're almost like, oh... If that gets a couple inches closer to where Ed's head is, it ain't going to look good for them because this is 12 days coming after Indio, and they're probably still yeah. hot about that. So we don't want another. Yeah, we don't want another incident. Yeah. yeah. Well, after Garden, Ed does this little line here, and that's going to tee you up for the big moment that you're going to get in this encore. No one in that crowd knows what lay ahead. And he says, hate your parents, hate your friends. Living is the best revenge. One, two, three, four. Calling this fast porch might be shortchanging this version. I'd call this supercharged. And they break into the solo. You know how sometimes they just let Mike kind of breathe a little bit? And then they start building, they start getting the drums up, and yeah, then... feel it out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's none of that.
it's just right away. Like, Speed push. Come, yeah. Come at you heavy, come at you strong. Mike is using an interesting pedal here that sounds like more of like an 80s hair metal style. And it just kind of jumps out at you. It sounds like really electric and driving. And the big strobe lights going off makes this feel pretty massive. What an incredible performance this is. And look, Porch is going to be the showstopper every single night of this tour. But all props to them for just bringing it on this version. This is one of the better ones that I've heard from 1993 by far. I was trying to time this on the video. I don't think it gets to seven minutes, but it's very close. I think it's definitely over six. And Ed's doing an improv here. There's something about touch me. And then a little bit of the, like, you fuck with me, I'll fuck with you worse, which would lead into, like, you uh, fuck yeah. with me, I'll fuck with you. Like the, Oh, well, I thought it was leading, that's kind of weird and sort of foretelling, because you fuck with me, I fuck with you, and he's about to spit in somebody's face mm-hmm. in the next 24 hours, yeah, so. Right, a little uh, foreshadowing there. But yeah, you can tell these improvs, he's feeling out some stuff and it gets not tearing like it's not androgynous mind but it's kind of in and around that air i think tearing was kind of in the rotation at this point i'm kind of surprised they didn't do it here but there's also some shenanigans over on that left side with mike and jeff too they're kind of messing with each other a little bit yeah, it's a mini mosh pit over there that was yeah. a lot of fun but this is the moment where jeff does that incredible leap onto the drum riser with one full swoop and he's there. Like, Jeff's a big dude, you know? I, I, how tall yeah, do you think yeah. Jeff is? I mean, if he stands next to Ed, he looks like he's 6'8", but he's probably like 6'4", maybe. 6'3", I would say, yeah. I mean, he give played basketball in college. Right. 6'2", two. Two, it says. Okay. Six, we'll, that's, give him, that's fair. We'll give him, we'll give him six two and a half. Sure. That's fair. His athleticism at the time still being young and spry like everything he does is effortless just awesome so at the end here ed pretends to hold up what looks like he's mimicking himself holding up a noose to hang himself at the end and that is something i think that comes back a little bit at some shows i think might come back in one not mistaken that we're going to talk about in the next coming weeks so hang on to that thought That would not happen after April of 94. No. And to segue into another subject, it is the encore now. Let's pause for station identification and talk about something else that is not that. Let's thank some people for joining up on Patreon and coming back to Patreon. So uh, first I want to thank Tim Figueredo. He joined up on the gig leg tier and that's awesome. And he also sent us an email already and kind of introduced himself, which is very cool. Yeah. He said he's a 20 year old newer fan in college and he's trying to dig in and like go deep down the rabbit hole and learn everything about this band. And it seems like he's a, at least a New Jersey guy because he mentions New Jersey a couple times in here. And the show that kind of turned him on to this podcast was the Camden one. And, he was super, super friendly and super nice and thanked us for what we've been doing. And we really appreciate him joining the community because people like him mm-hmm. are why we obviously continue to do this. So that that's that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, it's great. We Thanks, Tim. Really, really appreciate that. 
and he was trying to see what kind of episodes because he hasn't been to a lot of shows. So we'll figure out. Just keep listening to bootlegs. That's all you got to do. If you don't know what to pitch for an episode for us, if we've done all the shows you went to or you don't feel like you have a story, keep listening to bootlegs. I know there's all this time to listen to podcasts and do things with family and stuff like that, that you don't have time to listen to everything. But if something comes to mind and you like a set list or if you want a set list recommended, be happy, happy to share one for you. Have a little formula that we can work with that might get you a set list that might be the one for you to listen to. So just keep listening to stuff, even stuff that we're not doing. Just keep listening. And definitely listen to the stuff that we're doing upcoming because that's part of enjoying this podcast is that you can come into this with a knowledge of what happened and what you're listening to and say, all right, I can't wait to see what they said about footsteps or porch or something. So you can go to live footsteps and go to the search and put in a couple of your favorite songs and you'll see what set lists pop up with those songs. That's a good way to do it too. Thanks for giving away my formula, John. Right. All right. Nobody go to me anymore. (laughs) Just take John's advice. We gotta give Live Footsteps a shout out whenever we can. Bear. I guess I'll let it slide. Anyway, we also want to thank Chris Warren, the Kiwi. He did a little podcast called Ventricles Pumping, and he did his own take on Pearl Jam stuff, and hopefully we can get it back one day. He was doing a really nice job with that, but he joined back up on Patreon, so we thank him. He's a really good dude, and really smart, and knows his stuff about the band, so... Great to have you on board again. For you out there that wants to join on Patreon, it's pretty simple to do. If you have any device that will get you on the internet, then it is simple. Patreon.com slash live on four legs would be the way to go if you want to go to an actual website to do it. If you want to download an app, then you can download the Patreon app called Patreon app. And you can search for Live on Four Legs, and that's how you can subscribe to what we are doing over on Patreon, which we have lately put out a couple of new episodes. We just released a Gear Garage with Javier, which I know we haven't talked about Javier yet. We are getting there. He's going to have a couple moments in the encore here. Trust me, we're getting our fill of the guru today. Don't worry. He just put out... The Gear Garage on Do the Evolution, which was kind of a follow-up to what we did with the Evolution episode. That's the first time we ever tried something like that, and uh, the guy delivered. Just fair warning. Spoiler alert. The guy delivered. And I think one of the things that's just really incredible about what he did was he was able to go through some of the guitars and some of the pedals that he has to replicate what that sound was on the studio and what that sound is live. And he said it took him a long time to figure it out. That's why it took about a month to get this into your ears, guys. He, oh, he's called a guru for a reason. So we really just thank him for everything that he's brought to this podcast this year. He's been the MVP of the show, hands down, unanimous MVP. So we'll talk about him later. We'll talk to him. We'll hear from him. So no need to plug him more, but definitely... Go and listen to the Gear Garage if you haven't yet. And then we'll have in the next couple days probably the late night episode on Conan's Tonight Show debut from 2009 where the boys were the first ever musical guest on the show. So that'll be a nice little talking point and we'll have that out. And there's more stuff coming in Difference Evolution. We're going to talk about that a little bit once we get later into this episode. So 
if you want to do it, just do all those things I said before. Go to patreon.com slash live on four legs. Subscribe. It is a dollar a month at the minimum. A dollar a month will get you everything that's on our Patreon page. And the last time I checked, I think we have well over 300 posts. So some of that being audio, some of that being written material, but audio is well close to 200. So there's no lack of things to go back on, especially with evolution episodes and stuff like that. And if you are interested like Tim in joining the $5 gigaleg tier, you will get an episode of your choosing one of your favorite stories, one of your favorite shows, just something that maybe you want to hear us talk about, then make sure you pitch it. You have that ability to do that on the gig leg tier. And then on horizon leg tier, you get a little bit more. You can pitch your episode. We'll do your episode. And you also get a profile episode and talk about your Pearl Jam fandom. And that has been fun to do. We just released Dakotas a little while ago. So if you're interested in hearing one of those, Dakotas is up right now. So, Thanks for everybody that's been a patron for a long time. We're just keeping this train up and, and moving, and and your support means the world to us. And the support also means the world to us in different facets because we kind of talked about it last week, and I kind of want to plug it again, that every year we kind of want to give back a little bit to you guys, and we kind of want to do a little celebration. So we got the gift exchange going on that we talked about and that's fulfilled and everybody that has a partner now knows what to get and stuff like that so unfortunately you're unable to join that but but what you are able to do is you can join our zoom party on december 14th that is exactly a month away i'm going to mention it every week but it's a month away and we're going to have a lot of fun things at the party we're just going to celebrate we're going to hang out and talk and talk Pearl Jam stuff. Maybe there'll be a couple guests, and maybe there'll be musical guests. I'm trying to figure out a game show thing to do. So, and it'll also be the debut of my brand new studio, too. That's my reveal to the public, I suppose. I don't have a name for the studio yet, though. I gotta think of something. And please, a couple of people have pitched things, but I'm open to all pitches. Gotta think of something really, really good. That is on... December 14th through Zoom and more info for that. Just kind of mark it in your calendar if you're interested in that. More info will happen as time comes. Put it that way. All right. Back to the rock. Only got a couple more songs left, but this encore has a lot of great talking points as it is. So let's just jump right in. And it's Rats. Now, this is only the ninth version being played. This is not one of the songs that they carried with them to Europe in June, July. It's not really one that they've dabbled with a whole lot, but they're working on it. They're still working through it. And we kind of spoke about it during the Slims episode of feeling like, okay, it didn't quite have like the transitions and the pieces yet. It kind of felt like it was all melded together, but the puzzle pieces, some of them were just missing. This one feels like they're put together, feels pretty good, feels worked on now. And I kind of remember doing a show in San Francisco where they were rehearsing this a couple of times, and we had that sound check, and they were trying to work on it at this point. They were trying to figure out what they had with it. And no, it was one of the lesser played versus songs, but it still had some time in the sun, and this was one of them. I love this version of Rats. I think it gets 
really interesting, especially during the solo. And yes, Mike does a great job, but especially, again, going back to what Stone is doing here. During the solo, Stone is doing these little, like, jolts on guitar, like this little... Like, it starts low and then builds, and it sounds super cool. And, of course, Ed's getting into it at the end, too. And, yeah, this is great coming out of an encore, too. Like, getting something a little bit of a left turn after porch you're gonna get something that's gonna get people moving a little bit but not something super intense you can still build into obviously the segue from rats into what comes next is amazing as well but this might be like the first great performance of rats now you like that little thing that stone was doing right but would you like if somebody else talked about it for a little while that would be know amazing do you I know a guy i i, I do I think I know who you're talking about. Well, if you know a guy, then I know a guy, and this guy knows a guy, and that guy might know him, and then the third cousin remove thing, yada, yada, yada. It's a Gear Guru segment. Let's get to Javier talking about Stone and Rats. Hey Randy, hey John, hey everyone in the podcast. So for this week, we're covering another 1993 show. This is going to be in New Orleans. I'm going to say the same thing that I said last week. It's super fun to listen to these guys around that time trying to figure it out where they wanted to go and try to find that signature sound that we know them as of today. But the song that I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking to you guys this week is Rats. Why? Because it has a slide guitar. So it's an element that we don't consider very much since it's not very used by this band. But we have examples like Red Mosquito, Deep, or Rats. So a little bit of back history about the slide. So the slide is a thing that has started to show up in the blues world, right? Sometimes in the most common presentation of a slide is when slide guitarists are using open tunings the most common ones that you can find when people play slide is E, D, and G. But I think the main intention of using the slide of the song is to make it a little bit more funky and to have that kind of like loose groove that the song represents, right? So in this case, I'm pretty sure that the slide used is uh, Chrome 1 because the Chrome 1 is going to still maintain the attack of the string, but the Chrome 1 is not going to be super bright or it's not going to be high pitch. Sometimes if you use a plastic slide, it's going to have that characteristic, which is kind of like unpleasant for certain ears. I personally prefer the metal one because I think you can really respect the tonality of the song and the guitar that you want to obtain. Another fun fact about the slide is the fact that blues players in the early days, in the 50s, even in the 40s and in the 30s, they use it to represent like a smooth whining sound that in some ways will represent the human voice. So when you don't have backing vocals, you don't have support in the vocals, you will use the slide just to represent some sort of a human voice. But I thought it was a pretty cool element to discuss in the song since it adds that kind of like funkiness, looseness, it adds a little bit more groove to it, especially because the tone is dictated by, and the rhythm especially is dictated by Dave A on 
drums and Jeff, whatever they're doing in the bass is super funky. And I think this slide is going to add a little bit to it, to what they were trying to achieve with the song. And again, now if we listen to the song nowadays, I think this is one of the songs that it hasn't been touched very much, which is great because I think it's pretty great in the way that it was conceived first. So, yep, that's the slide guitar on Rats. Ain't no rats in the basement of Cedar Falls, Iowa, right there. That is our guru. That is our guy. Nicely rat free Javier. No, no, rat free Javier. That's another nickname we can give him. Yeah. You know that somebody is appreciated when they have multiple, multiple nicknames. Going back to the sports center thing, that's going to be our sports center thing is giving him a new nickname every week. I don't have a good Bermanism for him, but yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it'll come. It's ingrained within me from working with him for all those mm-hmm. years. I've told this before, but for anybody that's interested, yes, I did have a Chris Berman nickname. And it was after my brother and sister-in-law left the company. I was the last of the Sobelhekins. I laughed because he wanted a laugh, but I told everybody afterwards and they said, that is the worst thing he's ever come up with. (laughs) I don't disagree. But I am very honored to have had a nickname hey, by yeah, him. Absolutely, you're in you're in the canon. Yeah, he's a really good person, and he really treats his people well. So, well, rats ends, and it doesn't really end because Ed decides let's keep this going, and he's gonna do an acapella rendition of Ben, the Michael Jackson song that the whole the two of us need yeah. to look no more. Is, yeah, is he's doing the original on. melody. Yeah. Hmm. And it's sweet. It's really sweet. And it's kind of, we're all being serenaded by this. And it's like, oh, this is kind of a, a nice little vulnerable Ed moment. And what are you going to follow this with? Are you going to go into like a small town or something a little bit quieter? You're going into blood. Is there any juxtaposition that is just completely on the opposite side of the plane here? That's the point, right? You want to suck them in and then punch them in the face. Blood is faster than the porch, I think. Like, this one is a loose cannon. Killer. You know? Killer. Rabid, and you play this loud in your neighborhood, and it's the kind of song that the police will get called and you will get questioned. Let's put it that way. Everything in 1993, you can say that there's a lot of versions of songs that could be that, but like this is the one that breaks the camel's back <laughs> that your neighbors are going to call and say, that's it. I'm done with this. 
you're disturbing the peace right now. And you're gonna have people checking your basement for bodies. Yeah, it got scary intense in this. And also, they didn't milk up that kind of middle section where they're digging back into the cores. They kind of... Yeah, no no fame tag, nothing like that. Just... Right. Which you, you kind of think that they could have even made it worse if they kind of sat on that bass drum a little bit and just pumped it out before, like, a hauling version to finish. But this is nightmare fuel right here. But they needed to get one more in before getting to the moment that we're going to spend a little bit of time on right here. Ed's going to take the mic. Says Jeff and I decided that this is the best bottle of wine that we've had on this tour. It's something that he's said in recent days. He has gone on and he's claimed the bottle of wine. This is a Friday night bottle of wine and all that. So that's kind of a, I guess if you want to say an evolution of his wine connoisseuring then sure whatever he says that means we're going to stick around and play for a little bit longer now we get an organ lugger coming out hmm. it's good that this was on the set list and it's good that they stuck with the plan because the organ well, lugger a, nowadays there's a whole committee there's like organ dudes the organ lugger nowadays does not have the same fate where he can have friends to help him but he lugs it out every single time it's there it's on stage and then sadly he pushes it away, and he still gets a paycheck, but, you know, the guy wants his organ to be played for that river the loneliest, The loneliest organ lugger. If only Ed spat in his face, but maybe he can feel like he had some comfort. Careful. Careful. <laughs> so Ed kind of looks it over here, pretends not to know what it is, and he says, well, you know what this means? It means our friend Brendan O'Brien is in town. He's going to play this B3 organ. That's the debut of the B3 in the band's history. And Ed bullshits with some of the people up front, and he's kind of asking if people were there last night because there's something going on, and like three or four. Oh, yeah, people like they, were... they can't get it to work. Like they're plugging it in. Brendan O'Brien's there trying to get it to work. Like there's a committee to discuss the organ. Like Dave Aberzies is up there talking to him, looking at it. This like five minutes of trying to get this thing to work. Yeah. In the meantime, Ed puts a cape. I thought it was like some kind of towel, mm-hmm. but. Mm-hmm. Looks like a cape because Mike mentions the cape. Yep, yep. And he puts it over Brendan, who's trying to get it working. And imagine if it didn't work. Like this whole thing just gets busted. And we don't get not just the version of Crazy Mary, but the version of Indifference, too. That's going to be the first right. time Indifference has that. But Ed goes on to say here the machine is not working. Everyone always wants advice for young bands. Don't ever have a keyboard player. You took your own advice until 2003. Get it. Yeah, lasted 10 years. And then Brendan is able to play some and the damn thing is working now. So they invite Victoria Williams on the stage. Obviously, you know who she is. She wrote the song. She is a Louisiana resident, I believe, Shreveport, Louisiana. And in the past, she has talked about Crazy Mary being about somebody that she used to see around her town, kind of in the same manner, like you'd see her, like she's kind of meandering around places. I think she might have said she could have been blind. I don't remember that point. So Crazy Mary is not a true story, but it's based off of a person that was influential to the story. So just thought I'd throw that out there. So then you get into the song. Somebody's sitting up with Dave A on the kid. I'm just going to throw that out there before. Yeah, is that, our, is that Jimmy Shove? Could be. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I think both of them are doing stuff. I think I couldn't pick kinda... him. Out. I couldn't pick Jimmy Shelf out of a lineup, but I'm, I'm no. guessing that's who it was. No, yeah, that's my guess too. But no idea. This is really about what this song is, and it's going back to the originally recorded version, much more stripped down and open version than we're used to. Where now it's kind of building to your big rock and roll moments, and the B three is getting you some energy and getting you some excitement with boom. And it's in most cases, maybe one of the coolest things that you have from the night when you can have the duel and Mike and boom, go at it or co-op it. But this is not that. This is Brendan giving a little bit of background texture to this, and it's a nice, kind of easy-going version. They only did it twice in this era. I believe the other time was also with Victoria. In Portland, yeah. Portland. And Ed and Victoria are trading lyrics. Victoria, obviously, what happened with Sweet Relief, she had multiple sclerosis pretty significant stuff for her to go out there and play to this crowd is pretty important and i'm sure meant a whole lot to her yeah and she's gone on record as saying like she loved the pearl jam version of crazy mary for her to be there and like to come out and play with them is obviously a huge bonus for them and i love the fact that she starts it off on guitar and like her version is a little more jangly like it's a little more of a rhythmic on the guitar than the way stone starts it and like yeah it sounds very cool and yeah, i love her voice like her version if you should go back and list people have some maybe they haven't heard it like her version of crazy mary is great and she does like it's not like an extra verse but there's some extra lyrics at the end and her and ed do that here they're giving it to her and playing it her way because she's there it's really really cool I think my favorite aspect of this is how much of a dream sequence the flying high above the trees over the hills section really feels like. It's very delicate, angelic, and it kind of is the heart of the song because you have that moment that kind of gets you transfixed where they're doing the ah, and it's a sweet, beautiful melody. 
when Pearl Jam does it now, it still has that vibe. And it's still harping back to that, but this is the Song of Angels, it feels like. Ed's voice at the end is very, very good. It might be the best he sounded on the whole show. The groove on this version is wonderful. Every time that they were on the verge, where you felt that they were going to explode, they just towed that line. They just towed the line where you think they're going to have a 2023 version of Crazy Mary, but they just tow that line. And it just stays within that great groove and uh, that beautiful melody and sound. And I think for melody and sound, I think for stuff that sounds beautiful and junk, because I'm going to be the one that doesn't sound eloquent at this moment, but we're going to throw it back to Javier because what's there to say? He's going to explain what all is happening on stage here and kind of do a little bit of the Crazy Mary then, Crazy Mary now. So let's just give it over to him. What do we expect when we hear Crazy Mary and we see it on the set? We expect Boom versus Mike. We expect that song that it's kind of like a jet plane, right? Like starting very, very slow, but then it will get to this climax that you just really enjoy. But this song is interesting to listen to because, first of all, there's no acoustic guitars on this. Like the, the original notes are respected. It's still going from A to E minor, D, and all the chord progression that is the original tune or the original song is written in. But there's no acoustic guitars, but I think Stone is using a Strat out of face, which when I was listening to the show, I was trying to wonder if they were trying to make their own country version of the song. I don't know, but I think... It sounds way different. I don't think it has that flow or that cadence that now the live version has nowadays, but I think it adds something pretty unique to it because it's kind of like you're listening to like a radio cut from the 80s. That's in the way that I still listen to it because you still have keys, which is Brendan O'Brien playing the keys on the show. And also you have Victoria Williams singing with it. So I think the song has more pauses. It doesn't have that flow and that cadence of what it is now. But I don't know. I think it sounds pretty cool in the way that they were trying to build it up around Victoria. I haven't listened to the original track in a while, but my theory is that they were trying to give her more space since there's a lot of lines on this song that it's kind of like she's not singing. She's more speaking to it. And with Ed contributing in the backing vocals, I think it adds something pretty cool at it. I barely hear Mike. I don't know if he was playing at all or maybe he was doing something very, very gentle in the back. But the most important thing, I think for me, it was Stone using the out-of-face Strat. And I'm pretty sure that there's something behind it too. That guitar is not dry at all. Probably some sort of little chorus coming from the amps since he didn't have a chorus pedal around this era. But yeah, interesting things that I think we wanted to analyze this week since it's a pretty cool quote-unquote beginner's copy and paste version of the original track in 1993 and then just kind of compare to what became now, which is a fan favorite as well. All right. Thank you, Javier. Crazy only, Javier. Only two segments today. Are you giving him another nickname? Crazy Javier? 
And he's got some crazy stuff at the wall to see what sticks. He's he's got some crazy to him. It's a madman kind of crazy. It's not mm-hmm. a stay away from this guy. But I don't know when he picks something up, then you might want to stay away. That that guitar is a weapon in his hands. And as uh, Woody Guthrie used to say, this machine kills fastest. So <laughs> hopefully that guitar that Javier has has that ability as well. Now we go into an indifference. This is going to close out this little encore. We're going to come back and we're going to get Leash afterwards. But for the first time in this song's young history, we have the injection of the keyboard. Brennan sticks around on stage for this. And it gives this a little bit of depth and sort of a little extra oomph. We're going through the evolution of indifference for this time period. And from what you hear very, very early on, the crowd is invested. The crowd is usually pretty invested in the song right from day one. But the guitars and some of the stuff that's going on stage are very stark. The guitars really don't do too much more to elevate the song. It's very just subtle. Every now and again, just a little bit of a drum beat. You hear a little bit of bass. But I think with Brendan O'Brien's influence here, you're able to get a little bit more of a fuller version. You're able to get a little bit more out of both Mike and Stone where they feel like they have a little bit of space to fill. I love it because it's full circle, right? Like Brendan played on the album versions. They're kind of like bringing that album version to life here for the first time. The version that people knew on verses that was still kind of fresh to them. I think adding the organ adds a lot to this and it kind of lets the guitars kind of, they don't have to fill in that space. There's a lot of space to breathe on this and it sounds very, very good. I really like this version of Indifference. This is going to be something that we spend a little bit more time on when we get to that Evolution episode, which is coming pretty soon. I would like to record that before I move on out of here, but who knows? It's going to be a busy time, so hopefully that gets in your hands pretty soon. All right, one more left. It's the Encore 2. They leave, they come back, and you got to end on one final big rocker. Now, I thought that Leash wasn't really known for being a closer much, but it's happened 21 times. That's not insignificant so all around this time too or after this it didn't happen again yeah and i think there are probably moments in like 91 or 92 where if they had an extra song in them an extra time they would throw this one out there but this is the time period where you're gonna get this and maybe 
for certain shows, this is how they should have ended instead of Indifference oh. or Ledbetter, you know? Here's like some, Here's some trivia for you. This is actually the last time it ended a show. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. yeah. Thanks yeah. a lot for the tips. <laughs> bon voyage to that. Yeah. It's foretelling for the massive party that would be on stage for Encore 2s in the future because Ed's out there swinging the microphone with no regard for human life and seeing the crowd just go crazy and everybody having one final moment on stage for this and knowing like the next show you're going to end by going from Bob O'Reilly into indifference so you're going to have the cover in there and you're going to have like that big celebration moment with the cover so you can do that the show right in the middle have leash kind of end your night you don't have to really have this big so long farewell until the next night and it's just one big party kind of leaves you on this exciting cliffhanger for what's going to come in the next show which the next song at the next show would be go which if you're thinking listen to all this back to back to back leash and go is pretty damn good so mm. great stuff great song to finish up this set yeah, just give them one last chance to rip it up and remind everybody like what kind of band they are at the end here. And yeah, a song like Leash, it was kind of the primal one, but like now it's it's on an album, it's on versus everybody knows it. it's not the unreleased one that it was in '91 and '92. But yeah, they just come out and just tear it up one more time before they say goodbye. All right, you guys, that's the set list, 18 songs, and now we're going to pick our top three. I'm going to go to number three, Footsteps. I love the resilience that it had in it for the era especially. And then I'm going to go to number two and say Why Go, because that was just heavy on the intensity in the early on. Like That was very, very good. I'll go back to that when I go back to versions of Why Go from this era. And then number one, I think that the obvious choice is Crazy Mary, and sometimes you have to go with the obvious choice. But we're going with the obvious choice here because the obvious choice is the best moment of this night. Honorable mentions to Blood and Porch and those kind of songs, but those were my three from this that I really took out of the show. Yeah, you could go a few different ways with this. My number three is going to be Rats. My number two is Porch. And yeah, no doubt, number one's Crazy Mary. Yep. All right. Well, this is going to be an interesting rating because this is one of those shows... That is considered to be pretty high up there. When you think of like great 1993 shows, this does pop up. Now, there's infamous shows like Indio, and then there's other shows that are known for other things like Vegas and having the Green River reunion. And this one is pretty well known because, you know, people can attach it to the arrest and they can attach Crazy Mary to it, especially if you're one of the old school crowd that remembers this time period, you would not get crazy Mary for another seven years until 2000. So that's a long time to have to wait for it. So this kind of became, I'm guessing a pretty sought after bootleg after a while, because people knew that if you want to hear crazy Mary live with Victoria Williams, with Brennan O'Brien, you go to this. So I, I have a lot of high praise for this show. I think the performance were excellent. I think it's a lot of what you expect out of 1993. And I'm teetering, but I think I'm going to teeter upwards and I'm going to give this show a 10. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's there. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I, I 
I can't do it. I don't think this is up there among the all-timers, but it's not far behind. I'm going to give this... I'm, I was between nine, nine and a half. I'm going to go 9.25. You can't do that. I'm doing it. You're, you and your near nine and a half. So. I, I almost never get to do that. So It feels higher than a nine, but less than a nine and a half. Remember the one time I gave a show a 9.8? Yes. That shouldn't be allowed anymore. Keep it to the the half numbers of the whole numbers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Hey, we're 259 episodes into this thing. We can afford to go off the radar every once in a while. Yeah, yeah. And I guess since you kind of stay right on the surface for the most part, then you can have your moment with this. Yeah, Yeah, fine. It won't, won't happen. It won't happen often. All right. Mark this in as the unique one in the catalog of Live on Four Legs that John gives us the weird rating of 9.25. Next week, we're going to go back to 1993, believe it or not. We're not done. Still stick with this. 30 years of verses deserves to be talked about. We're going to have a great guest on next week. It is a former guest. He's been on a couple of times, but, I mean, the guy wrote the Bible, and he actually messaged us when we were doing the Slims episode, we were looking for somebody that went to Slims and ended up stumbling across Kathy, which was perfect. And he messaged, he was like, hey, I want to go and talk about Slims. Can I talk about Slims? And I'm like, I want to find somebody who was there, but hold on to that thought because I want to talk to you about Versus. So we are going to invite back Jonathan Cohen onto the show. Great guest. He's so insightful, has a lot of knowledge of the band. He wrote the Bible, and we're going to talk a little bit about what he spoke to the band about in 1993 and kind of what happened in that time and his perspective of it. And also a little bit of his fandom too, because he was in the thick of it back then. So we have a lot to discuss and the episode that we're going to be doing is Nacogdoches in Texas. There is something that happens in the show and we pick these shows because something occurred at every one of them that was like a big talking point this one was obviously the arrest and crazy mary last week was the hold me improv next week is going to be dave a having a little incident before the encore and them having to adjust on the fly in a very interesting fashion so if that's something that that has never happened to them before i believe there was one show where jeff kind of got hit with something and he had to sit out for a couple songs, something like that. But that was really, really early on. But this is something that's kind of unprecedented in their catalog. So it's going to be really, really interesting to go back to this one and kind of dissect the story and everything. So going to be a lot of very interesting versions of some of these songs. So if you like that, then make sure you're subscribed on all of the podcast platforms that you can be. Apple Podcasts, you can sign up over there and subscribe over there. Spotify, I'm just naming two. Those are the two big ones, but there are other podcast platforms out there that you guys use, and you can subscribe to any of them. And if you want to go the next step further, then please like us, rate us, rate us the five stars. We've been doing the work. We deserve the five stars, right? Well, that's up to you. I hope you guys think that. A lot of other people think that. We have a pretty good rating on both of those platforms over there. So if you're interested in helping out, especially on Apple, you can leave a little comment, say what you think about the show, and maybe talk about something we covered that 
it's a show that means something to you, something like that, and just let the next person know that's looking for something to listen to that, hey, this is what we do. We talk about shows, we relive past memories, we talk about history, and we celebrate the band that we can't get enough of. Even after all these years, there's still just something about them that has us gravitating towards them just nonstop. So... Like John said, we're 259 episodes in. There's no quitting this. We're going to try to get it to all of your memories as soon as we can, and hopefully we got to a few of yours in this one today. Once again, a really big thank you to Jack. It was a really tight turnaround. We didn't know that we were going to get him until later in the week, and we had to do some re-record and re-edits and work around it, but it was awesome to have him, awesome to get that reflection on that, and he was a great guy to talk to, so glad that you guys were able to hear his side of the story. All right, that should wrap that up. This may be the end. We're here, but not for much longer, and although we may be parting ways, miss you already, miss you always. I don't know what a Nacho Doches is, But we're going there next week. I also know how to pronounce it right. I'm just being a dick. We'll see you then. Maybe I'll be sober. Maybe I'll be fucked up. Number 29 is a friend of mine named Jack McDowell. This is my tribute to him here. Um, He was the first pitcher to win 20 games. And he gave me one of his caps um, that I wore all through the European tour and the American tour. It was kind of a good luck thing. I always had a good show with it. And um, he seemed to be playing well as long as uh, we were playing well. Have you heard of that new EP he's got out? Oh, yeah, it's great. There's a song called Trickle Down that I warm up to before we go on. Um, He's pretty good. George Brett said uh, that if he could uh, sing as good as he pitched, maybe he'd buy some of his records. But I think George is just jealous. I think George ultimately would like a record of his own. George is trying to cash in on the grunge scene. He's just jealous. <laughs> what about Vue? Have you heard the rest of the uh, you, know, you guys thought about Vue or about using, you know, like, doing maybe a gig with Vue or something like that? Oh, yeah, I heard they actually do a really good acoustic version of Alive, but he hasn't played it for me. Um, there was a gig apparently at CBGB's. Tell me, about, tell me about that and how Jack had to move next door. Oh, yeah. Well, what I remember is that uh, all I know is we pulled into town, we're doing sound check, and this really tall guy, I saw his silhouette walk up to the stage and turned out to be Jack. I guess they were going to be playing at CB's, but um, we kind of bumped him to the the art gallery next door, um, which I heard he played a a rocking set. Uh, That was right before they went on tour with the Smithereens. So that was okay with him, yeah, no, no, we, we had known each other for a while. His um, his girlfriend and uh, and I and my girlfriend, we've been friends for years and years and years. So uh, Plus, I've always been a big Chicago sports fan, so it's kind of cool to be able to know somebody. Maybe I'll get to sit in the bullpen someday or something. Are going to do the Yeah, but I would play electric guitar like Jimi Hendrix. And I'd have it be wireless, so I'd start the song at home plate, and I'd run around and then slide into home to finish it off. And I imagine the crowd would pretty much boo me. It would be a worse showing than Roseanne. <laughs> <laughs>